Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the second uh, Signum seminar that we are doing this year. Um, I'm uh, very excited for this one. Of course, as I explained before, back in the fall when we did our first seminar series with Dimitri Femi and Andrew Higgins on the, on a secret vice, uh, that this this series is designed to look at all of those recent publications that uh, Christopher Tolkien uh, and others have been coming out with uh, lately, sort of filling in the uh, some of the gaps that we've had for a long time in the Tolkien corpus. And a lot of us were very excited when uh, uh, Tolkien's Beowulf material was released uh, several years back. I know that a lot of sort of casual fans have, have kind of not really known as much sort of what to do with that with that volume and um, you know I, I, I've had a lot of conversations with people who were just kind of wanting to sort of to kind of understand better what is significant about that what, what are the things that we can see there and what exactly do we learn from that uh, so of course uh, I could think of no one better than Dr. Tom Shippey to uh, help us with that so I'm very grateful that Dr. Shippey was able to join us for this seminar series um, I will um, stand aside here in uh, in uh, just a moment I wanted to remind you though especially for people who are new to this interface um, in the, uh, the, the the chat box or the questions box that you have there on your go to webinar control panel um, please as uh, Dr. Shippey is, is, is talking throughout his time. Um, go ahead. Any questions that occur to you along the way or comments that you have, feel free to go ahead and add those. Uh, he'll be looking at those. He, want, you know, he want, wants to do some, uh, some discussion and some Q&A at the end of his talk. So, but if, if you don't wait until the end to, to type them, it'll be easier to start that off at the beginning. So go ahead and enter that as we go along. But anyway, thanks very much. And uh, I, 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 Tom, thanks again for joining us. And I'll hand it over to you. Okay, well, uh, hello everybody. Um, let me just say this uh, completely baffles Corey as well as myself, but uh, my uh, camera keeps uh, moving in and out. We don't know why it does that, but there, it doesn't matter really. Um, so it just adds a touch of strangeness to the whole thing. Well, um, I am going to talk about Beowulf and Tolkien three times, and each time I'll um, focus on one of Tolkien's three main contributions to Beowulf studies. And they are, and I'll hold them up to the camera, uh, uh, this is the 1936 lecture, Beowulf, the Monsters and the Critics. This is his uh, posthumously published work, um, Finn and Hengist, the fragment in the episode, 1982. And now, of course, we have the third of them, which is uh, uh, the uh, translation and commentary on Beowulf, together with the... Uh, uh, story, Selich Spell, which is Old English for Wonder Tale. Well, um, I'm going to talk about uh, those one at a time, but of course I'll be cross-referencing uh, uh, all the time as well. It's not just uh, sticking to the one. Now, these three works have had very different receptions. Um, the 1936 uh, lecture, uh, not immediately, but eventually, uh, became established as a classic. And uh, by some scorings, it's the most cited academic paper in the humanities of all time. I don't know how you actually uh, make an accurate count of that, but it's certainly one of the most frequently cited uh, academic publications. Good. Um, by contrast, the, the, uh, the book about Finn and Hengist uh, really um, uh, has had almost no publicity at all. Um, uh, I have seen perhaps one or two citations of it in the scholarly literature, 
but uh, but uh, as far as I can see, uh, Tolkien's opinions there uh, just have not uh, not been taken up. And part of the reason is that in 1982 he was contradicting, uh, to, to a large extent, what he'd said in 1936. And 1936 had established itself so firmly that 1982 was sort of uh, unable to get past that. Uh, and then the whole situation was changed by the 2014 publication of the translation and, more significantly, uh, Tolkien's long but partial commentary on the poem, which again comes up with uh, quite different thoughts and actually also uh, sometimes makes clear what he was uh, keeping rather to himself in the 1936 lecture. But all three say something, and they say something different about what Tolkien saw in the poem, and they also say something different about how it was reflected in his fiction. Well, uh, obviously, I'm going to start with the 1936 lecture, which is, again, been immensely successful and is often said to be, often cited as, uh, uh, the start of a completely new era in Beowulf studies. Well, um, that's, uh, that's uh, partly true. In fact, it's largely true. Uh, there are other things one can say about it. And one of the other things I'd say is that um, it's now recognized in, uh, in some quarters as being um, rather sneaky. Uh, sneaky is not a word people often use about Tolkien, so I'll, I'll hesitate a bit and say, well, it has a strong personal element, which at the time he concealed, but which is now much more obvious, partly as a result of the work of Michael Drought. Professor Drought actually found Tolkien's uh, drafts and, uh, and early, uh, early statements of the lecture, and uh, from that we can often see what, uh, what Tolkien, what he meant, but what he decided on the day not to say. Uh, and I'll be pointing out one or two of those uh, uh, concealments uh, later on. Well, to make sense of the 1936 lecture, I need to start off by saying something uh, about Beowulf itself, about the poem. Uh, just one thing for the moment. And uh, perhaps I should just say at the start that, uh, that uh, we've been studying Beowulf for over 200 years since, uh, since the first edition. And at the end of that, I sometimes think there is not a single thing you could say about the poem Beowulf which would not be challenged by someone. If I was to say um, it's a poem, there are people who say, oh no it's not, oh no it's not, it's two poems or three poems or as many as eleven poems which have been kind of uh, stitched together. If I was to say, uh, well alright, uh, uh, it, it's in Old English, uh, there were people who said, well, yes, but you can see it's a translation. You can see it's a translation from Frisian, or you can see it's a translation from Old Norse, or whatever the, uh, the flavor of the month was. Well, uh, much of that is, uh, uh, you know, has not become part of the consensus, but we haven't got much of a consensus about it. Still, so I'm going to try and say one thing about it, which, of course, would be denied by many people, but... Um, I would say that uh, uh, its structure is in detail extremely complex. I admit that. Words have been used about the structure of the poem, such as, uh, for instance, fractal. I'm not entirely sure what fractal means, but it's a word that people use nowadays. Another word which was used by somebody rather, actually I think it was me, uh, was to say it's kind of pointillist. 
you know, like those French paintings which consist entirely of, of little dots of color and the little dots of color all build up into a shape. So the detailed structure is very complex, but that's not what I meant to say. What I meant to say was the surface structure is extremely simple. Extremely simple. And even though it's extremely simple, you could say, and I would say, that, uh, that uh, it's flawed. All right. What do I mean by saying it's a, it's a very simple structure? Well, um, perhaps you could have the first slide, Corey, uh, to come up. Yeah, there we are. Um, you see what I mean? I've got A1, B1, A2, B2, A3, B3, A4. Uh, so, it consists, as everybody knows now, of three uh, great fights. There's the fight with Grendel. There's the fight with Grendel's mother. And there's the fight with the dragon. Um, but there's a long build-up to the first fight. There's a long interlude between the first and the second. There's an even longer interlude between the second and the third. And at that point, and this is what I meant about a flawed structure, there's a sudden 50-year uh, jump. Wham! Beowulf's a young man, just come home from fighting Grendel's mother. Wham! Beowulf's an old man, uh, getting set to fight the dragon. And the, uh, all the many events that take place in between uh, are told in a confusing way uh, uh, and in, in different places uh, uh, in flashback. Then we have the fight with the dragon, and then after the fight with the dragon, we have um, a long wind-down all the way to the, uh, the funeral. Now, m the modern movies, of which there have been at least five that I uh, uh, can identify, the modern movies invariably, and modern retellings almost invariably, uh, concentrate on what I've called the B sections, uh, the fights. That's uh, what uh, has interested the movie makers. But the A sections, I call them the A sections, the, uh, the, the, the build up, the wind down, and the two interludes in between, they contain an awful lot of information. An awful lot of information. And that, in some ways, was what first caught the eye of the scholars studying Beowulf. Not the fights, the, uh, the interludes and the information. If you could have the second slide, uh, Corey, uh, I've done a kind of uh, uh, brief summary of um, what is in fact uh, uh, A2, uh, what is happening in between uh, the Grendel fight and the fight with Grendel's mother. And of course what I've done there is, is only, uh, uh, it's only a short uh, summary of it. And I won't go through it. Uh, you can see all the things I've said. There are at least uh, uh, um, seven or eight sections there. One of them, of course, is the story of Finn and Hengist, which is what Tolkien spent such a great deal of time on, and which is the subject of his, of his book of, the, of 1982. Um, uh, and I'll be talking about that next time. But uh, one way of quantifying the difference between what I call the A sections and what I call the B sections between the fights and the other things is to note the, uh, uh, the number of names in them. In the fight sections, there are very few. Grendel gets a name. Grendel's mother does not get a name. Beowulf, of course, gets a name. And in the fight with the dragon, his assistant Wiglaf gets a name. Um, there are some who say, uh, it was actually the Dane Nikolai Grundtvig, uh, that there is a name there for the dragon, which we didn't notice because we thought it was an adjective, in which case the name is Starkheart, a good name for a dragon. But I think actually Grunvig was probably wrong. 
So I'll go back to saying, look, in the fight sections, we have basically three names. All right, uh, but in the other sections, in the other sections, the, uh, the, uh, the, the interludes and the build-up and the wind-down, uh, there are more than 70. Um, and one wonders why. Because as far as we can see, some of those names have a function, like Sigmund and, and, and Heromode, though we're not very sure what the Heromode function is. Uh, but all right, some of them uh, are names familiar from uh, Heroic Legend, and there seems we can see a kind of point in, uh, in them being introduced. But some of them are not like that at all. Um, uh, here, here's, th this creates what I call the Ehrmann-Laugh problem. Um, I better explain that. Uh, um, there's a rather, there's a slightly comic scene, uh, actually, um, in the uh, the uh, uh, a, a, a two section. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, um, which is that? Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. It's in the A three section. Um, uh, 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 Grendel's mother has uh, has come down to the. Uh, Beowulf killed Grendel. Um, general celebration. Everyone thinks it's fine. The next night, Grendel's mother comes down to the Hall Herot uh, in order to get revenge for her son and also to recover her son's arm, which Beowulf has torn off and nailed up as a trophy. So she comes back, she recovers the arm, and she seizes a Danish warrior and carries him off uh, to eat him. Uh, the next morning, Beowulf, who has not intervened because he wasn't there, he was actually not in the hall, he was in some kind of uh, visitor's annex, and he didn't know what was going on. He comes in all innocent of what's been happening, and he says to King Hrothgar of the Danes, uh, uh, have you had a good night? And Hrothgar replies, uh, <laughs> one has to say uh, reasonably, but also quite angrily, Nifrindu after Salem, soch is your newer denia leodum, dared is Ashera, irman laf is ildra brothor, was mean runwita on mean redbora, axel is stella, yofras knisidon, which I will translate. Uh, uh, the irritated king says, don't talk to me about good times. Sorrow has been renewed for the Danish people. Dead is Asherah. Erman laughs, elder brother. He was my counselor and my confidant. He was my shoulder companion when the warriors clashed. And you think, yeah, okay, okay, we get, get the point. Hrothgar is uh, upset and cross. Yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, point taken. Uh, let's just have it in... Um, in uh, Tolkien's translation. Um, yes, I'm just saying it again. Dead is Asherah, the elder brother of Ermenlaf. My counsels were his, and his wisdom mine. At my right hand he stood, when on fatal field we fended our lives as the ranks clashed in battle. And, and, and a good few more lines later. Well, uh, we, we get the point. It, he is a, a serious loss to Hrothgar. What does... Why do we need to know uh, the name of his younger brother? It would, I, I said at, at one point uh, uh, that that line was the most redundant line in the poem. If you just crossed it out, no one would ever know that there had been a line missing. You could just carry on without it. Uh, here's uh, Hrothgar. Sorrow is coming new on the, upon the people of the Danes. Dead is Asherah. My counsels were his and his wisdom mine. At my right hand he stood. We don't need to know about Omen Laugh. And it's a good job we don't need to know about Ermenlaf. 
because we don't know anything about him. We have no idea who he is, what he is, what he did. Um, what did? It makes a kind of sense, after all, for, for, for the poet to make up a name of a casualty. It's a bit more human, you might say, than saying, well, we lost a guy. We say we lost a guy. He was called Asherah. Okay. But do we need to know about his younger brother? Especially as it's an odd name. Um, we've got great big long lists of all the names recorded in all the documents in Anglo-Saxon England, and there is no Ehrman laugh there. It doesn't seem to be an Anglo-Saxon name. So it's a mystery. Um, it's not the only one. I said it was the most redundant line in Beowulf. And my friend, uh, Professor Bremer uh, uh, from Leiden University, he said, no, that there's, there's lots of them. And he, he, he listed a number of them. And I said, yeah, Rolf, but mine's a more redundant line because Irmanlaff, whoever he is, gets a whole line. And the guys you're talking about usually only get a half line. So I'm going to say mine's a, mine's a more. But I take Rolf's point. There are a lot of people mentioned in the poem who don't seem to be doing anything at all. They're just there. There's a kind of giant cast list with nothing for them to do. Well, that's, um, that's kind of really puzzling. And uh, to cut matters short, my own belief is that um, uh, there were legends about most of these people which the audience might well be expected to know. And so the poet wasn't making them up. He was alluding to them and expecting them to have some kind of resonance. It's a bit like, uh, you know, Mallory's Mort Darthur. Mallory often mentions, uh, uh, you know, minor knights, knights of whom we don't know very much. But if you were a real Arthurian fan, you could probably tell us something about many of them. Sir Mador de la Porte, yes, there's a story about him. Sir Severus Le Bruce, yes, there's a story about him. Sir Bruce Sans Pitié, yes, he gets quite a lot of mentions. If you are a, if you are a keen fan, this kind of remark, like Irmanlaf's elder brother, would mean something to you. And actually, I think I can, I can kind of prove that. Um, but I won't tell you why or how I can prove it. You see, I, I get rather excited about this, and that's my point. The first scholars of Beowulf, before Tolkien, they got very excited about that kind of thing. They were, they were busting themselves to kind of try and trace these allusions and these uh, references. Because um, what Beowulf to them was to them, was not a poem, really. I mean, it was, but, but what they were really interested in was this. It was a kind of window into the very darkest part of the Dark Ages, Scandinavia in the 5th and 6th centuries. And many of them were Scandinavians, and they really wanted to know about their own history. So they were fascinated by the whole thing. Um, and they, you know, that's what they put their energy and their interest into, especially as, this is me talking now, especially as, the 5th and 6th century, you might say, was the time of nation formation. If you were a winner during that period, you're on the map now. If you were a loser in that period, you're either not on the map at all, or else you are there in subsidiary or subordinate status. Uh, Beowulf's people, the Yatas, they were losers. They're still on the map, but they're not a nation. The Swedes were winners. They're on the map. They're a nation. That's Sweden. The Danes were winners. The Swedes were winners. The English were winners. The Jutes weren't. The Yatas weren't. 
and there were other people like the bards of whom we know um, effectively nothing they disappeared so uh, the uh, Scandinavian and German scholars looking for clues about the origins of their own nation they thought Beowulf was really fascinating but what they were fascinated by was not the fights they were fascinated by the interludes they were fascinated by the extra information they were fascinated by what I call the A sections not the B sections right um, well right that's what Tolkien said in 1936 and what he said was uh, uh, that they were wrong uh, in fact I think I can uh, uh, give his uh, exact words uh, it's there on page one of his lecture he said um, it has been said of Beowulf itself that its weakness lies in placing the unimportant things at the center and the important on the outer edges the unimportant things uh, uh, then are the fights and the important things are the uh, the interludes and the information which they can contain that is what people had been saying and Tolkien then says this is one of the opinions that I wish especially to consider I think it profoundly untrue of the poem but strikingly true of the literature about it so Tolkien is trying to reverse the kind of uh, concentration which I've been talking about and to say let's let's leave the A sections out of it let's concentrate our minds on the B sections well um, it's interesting that uh, you know uh, uh, not quite ever since but for the last doing a bit of sums in my head the last 65 70 years uh, Tolkien's opinion has been um, uh, generally accepted it wasn't accepted right at the start uh, because he was challenging something that had, you know that was the consensus indeed uh, first reviews of Bell's uh, of Tolkien's lecture were um, pretty lukewarm actually um, his friend Chambers was very keen on it but Kleber the German the great editor of the poem he said well he obviously thought Tolkien was one of those uh, uh, interesting English scholars who were nice chaps engaging but not really serious not uh, not people to be taken seriously in fact dilettante is the word that comes to mind uh, he thought that um, he said uh, uh, all very interesting all very engaging you know very persuasive and all that but one has to say uh, he left many questions unanswered and those questions were important questions and other scholars from Europe said look he's arguing in a circle look uh, it's not clear what he says look uh, we're not really sure what he's on about to tell the truth um, and there was some truth in those uh, comments well um, uh, just to say I mean Kleber says that he these unanswered uh, questions I can tell you one of them uh, you note if you read the lecture that uh, Tolkien uh, keeps saying that we've got to kind of put our finger on the, on the exact point when this poem was composed and conceived and he has phrases like um, fusion at a given point of contact and he says a moment of poise okay so we have a point of contact we have a moment of poise and the natural question is uh, uh, okay Toller so when was it when do you mean give us give us a date huh uh, which he doesn't he, he says well uh, uh, I'm not going to talk about it. age of bead everybody says age of bead I'll go along with age of bead 
But having said, we need to realize it's an absolutely critical point of contact. He doesn't say what the point is. And that was the kind of thing that, uh, that uh, people were, uh, were critical of uh, at, when, when the lecture was first received. Well, um, Tolkien's lecture is much harder to paraphrase uh, than the poem Beowulf. And one of the reasons it's successful, I think, is it's kind of insidious. It slips along. It, you, know, you get funny bits. You get jokes. You get uh, dramatic and moving passages. Uh, and you, you, you don't get a kind of uh, uh, one, two, three, four, five uh, uh, structure in it. Well, uh, just the same, I'm going to try to provide a kind of one, two, three, four, five structure uh, just to say what, uh, uh, what, what the, the overall shape of the lecture is. Okay, I'll, I'll try and do that. Um, I see it as uh, five main sections. There's a prologue, and I've already given that really. It's what he says about the center and the outer edges. He says he wants to uh, redirect attention away from the outer edges to the real center, the real center, which is the monsters. Um, having said that, uh, he does his very funny uh, summary of all previous thought. Uh, there's a string of allegories. There's the allegory of the, the fairy godmother uh, turning up and uh, and uh, uh, turning up to the christening of the of the poem, and unfortunately bringing with her all her attendants, Historia, Philologia, and Leographia. Do you know what Leographia means? Uh, actually, I had to go and look it up, and it means really uh, taking a census. And I thought, yes, that, that's right. That's what I've been doing, taking a census. Okay. So uh, really, uh, um, uh, in that case, I'm one of the bad fairies who turned up to the poem uh, and, and uh, uh, when, when uh, Historia came along, but poet, poesis, poetry, was left out. Oh, well, that's, that's unfortunate. But uh, uh, Tolkien gives that allegory, and then he goes on to the rather exact allegory of the guy who uh, uh, takes the stone from an old hall and uses it to build a tower from which he can see the sea. And then you have the very funny section about the, uh, the babel of conflicting voices, all the things that have been said about Beowulf. Um, uh, the rules of narrative are cleverly observed in the manner of the learned epic. It is the confused product of a committee of muddle-headed and probably beer-bemused Anglo-Saxons. This is a Gallic voice. It is a string of pagan lays edited by monks. It is the work of a learned Christian antiquarian. It's a, well, you know, they're all those things he said. And actually, in my copy, I've written in the margin the names of the people he means. And I think I can actually identify every single one of them. Um, so, although... Uh, um, it seems very, very, very funny that there could be so many completely contradictory opinions about Beowulf. That's the truth. Well, uh, uh, Tolkien then summarizes uh, uh, all previous thought, and actually his summary was so amusing and so accurate in a way uh, that um, it's been extremely destructive. Uh, Tolkien is often hailed as inaugurating the start of a new era of Beowulf studies. Right. But he was also announcing the end of an old era of Beowulf studies. And what he was saying really was um, these old guys, you know, uh, Sievers and Kaluza and Sarazin and Grundvig and Millenhoff and, and Ten Brink and, and all the others, you can forget about them. You can forget about them. They, they, uh, they don't matter anymore. And that was very generally accepted. 
partly because all these old guys wrote in German or in Danish usually and if you uh, were an English uh, academic you didn't want to have to read them so Tolkien said you don't have to read them and everyone said yeah well thank goodness for that um, but that was a pity because the old guys knew things and one of the results of uh, Tolkien's lecture was to hand the poem over to people who didn't know things and who didn't see why they should know things in fact he took the poem away from the old philological critics of whom he was one and he handed the poem over to the literary critics a very base and inferior crew whom I like Tolkien have spent my life fighting and they uh, they kind of ran off with the poem and that was kind of unfortunate and and I'm sure Tolkien didn't really mean to do it but he did <coughs> he said you don't need to know any philology anymore you can just make opinions up out of your own head and in some ways that was what people wanted to hear anyway that's sorry there's a prologue there's the section about all previous thought he then goes on to consider Kerr and Chambers and their views that uh, there really wasn't much in the story uh, and in particular the way that, um, <coughs> that uh, Chambers um, said well there's not much to be said about dragons um, and Tolkien uh, of course uh, uh, joked about that and said uh, <coughs> it's very puzzling uh, in face of the odd fact that uh, people have derived great pleasure from a poem that is actually about these unfashionable creatures so he said let's uh, let's go back to the dragons excuse me a moment right um, and then having said all that we get to the meat of the argument and Tolkien says that uh, uh, the monsters uh, are the essential theme of the poem and that's why we should take them seriously I would suggest then that the monsters are not an inexplicable blunder of taste they are essential fundamentally allied to the underlying ideas of the poem which give it its lofty tone and high seriousness okay so we got to the meat of the argument which is the essential theme of the poem and what it's all about according to Tolkien is a shift from a pagan conception of the universe to a Christian one in the Christian one there is no room for the non-humans for the monsters they have to be reclassified as demons as evil spirits but that change has not yet happened it's happening but it's not yet completed what the change does though is to make the folktale story about defeating monsters a universal story and that's why it's the essential theme of the poem and the last thing that Tolkien says is to go on to address the poems uh, structure and indeed its obvious defect of structure which is that it is in two unequal halves with a giant leap in between them and he says uh, the two parts are like the old English poetic line which is also in two halves and they're about youth and age he says it's a simple but static structure well okay uh, all I can say is that uh, yeah I hear what you say talking but Aristotle would not have liked this Aristotle said that just because events happen to the same person that does not mean you have a unified epic to have a unified epic you have to have a theme and for instance the Iliad the, the great Greek epic of Homer it starts off with the line menin aeete thea pelea uh, and the first word is menin anger 
he says, sing, goddess, of the anger of Achilles, son of Peleus. Um, and that's the theme. It's about the anger of Achilles. Um, well, um, that is not the case with Beowulf. Um, it is a, a biographical epic. Uh, and uh, Tolkien's statement that it's like the old English half-line, well, yeah, kind of. They're both sort of halves, except they're unequal halves, but I can't see that that really helps us very much. Um, so we end up with a question. Um, all right, uh, Tolkien says the monsters are the theme. Uh, quite how does that work? What is the, the theme of Beowulf? Well, many people have tried to answer that, and, and uh, I don't think there's any agreement about it. Um, so uh, Tolkien redirected attention to the monsters without quite convincing people um, of uh, what, uh, what the monsters represented. Well, I've said something about Beowulf, about its structure. I've said something about the 1936 lecture about its structure. And I'd I like to say something about Tolkien's underlying problem in creating his own fantasies. And in what I think, well, I'm quite sure, is the major connection, the important connection, between Beowulf and, say, Lord of the Rings. What was the problem which um, the author of Beowulf had and which the author of, and which Tolkien had? Uh, it's quite simple in a way. It's um, fitting the personnel of fairyland into a Christian universe. Fairyland? Not a good term, and Tolkien wouldn't have liked it, but I haven't got a better one. Um, when Christianity started to expand into the world of Northwest Europe, it faced two problems. One was belief in gods like Thor and Odin and Loki and so on, and the missionaries dealt with that pretty briskly. They just wiped them out. Uh, but there was another problem, and that was belief in creatures like um, elves and dwarves and trolls and thurses and boggarts and hobs and, and a lot of them, uh, an awful lot of them. Um, uh, and this was very much harder to eradicate. It was no good approaching a medieval peasant and saying, uh, there's no such thing as elves, you know. Uh, he knew different. He knew he had stories about them. He may well have known places where elves were supposed to live. You weren't going to talk him out of it. So uh, actually, if you were, well, you had a problem, which was if you wanted to impose the Christian worldview on these people, you had to have some kind of explanation uh, for the uh, the non-human creatures which they believed in so firmly. Uh, okay, um, I know at least uh, six uh, explanations, uh, six answers to this question, and I'll, I'll tell you one of them. Where do the hidden people come from? The Huldu folk. That's Icelandic for hidden people. Well, it's simple. Um, in the Garden of Eden, before the fall of man, uh, Adam and Eve had many children. And uh, in those happy days, uh, God used to come and visit them. And one day, uh, God turned up uh, uh, rather unexpectedly, and Eve uh, realized that several of her children were dirty and scruffy and hadn't been washed and were not fit to be seen. So she hid them round the back of, of wherever it was Adam and Eve were living. Um, and uh, uh, God uh, uh, looked at the children who were presented for inspection and said, what nice children, uh, 
have you got any more? And Eve lied to God. She said, no. And God said, those who are hidden from me, let them from now on be hidden from men also. And they were the unwashed children of Eve. And they became the ancestors of the hidden people. They were hidden from men because they'd once been hidden from God. Well, that's one of uh, about six theories I happen to know. Uh, quite a nice one. Uh, you notice the Beowulf poet, uh, he actually has a different view. He says that uh, uh, people like Grendel, or creatures like Grendel, um, yes, they're sort of human. They're children of Adam, sort of. Um, but they're, from the, the, they're, they're descended from Cain. They're descended from the primal murderer. Uh, uh, and he mentions the killing of, uh, of Abel by Cain. Uh, however, I also noticed that in the one manuscript of the poem, the person copying this, it should be obvious that he means Cain because it says Abel. But actually, every time he writes it, he seems not sure whether he means Cain or Ham, which in that kind of handwriting look rather similar. Because there's another story which says that uh, these uh, creatures are not the descendant from Cain, they're descended from Ham, the third son of Noah, who is cursed for mocking his father. So, uh, it's as well as the poet knows one theory, has one theory about the, these creatures, and that the scribe uh, happens to have another. Notice also, and could we have the third slide, Corey? Notice also that there were hardline and softline views, and the Beowulf poet was a hardliner. He did not think that there was much space for these. And you notice here, I said Tolkien could be sneaky, and this is his translation. Uh, of him, that's of Cain, all evil broods were born, uh, were born, ogres and goblins and haunting shapes of hell and giants too. But it doesn't say ogres and goblins, does it? It says Jotunas, and that's the same as Old Norse Jutun, a very common word in Old Norse, which means giants, and Ilva, and I have to tell you, that means elves. And then it says Orkneas. So what the Beowulf poet did was to lump elves and orcs together and say they're all pretty much the same thing. He was a hardliner. He had no time for any of them. He thought they were all bad. Um, well, you can see Tolkien didn't like that. He didn't accept that because he was a softliner. He thought that elves, well, as you know, you don't need me to tell you that, he thought elves were okay. But the Beowulf poet did not. And Tolkien then, I've I got to say, he cheats in his translation. He said, they're not elves, they're goblins. Oh, well, okay. We won't argue about that. It's just that you can see there is a kind of difference of opinion there between the Beowulf poet and the Tolkien himself. Well, a Tolkien uh, uh, you know, could deal with that by doing a bit of retranslation, but he was nervous about the whole pagan-Christian interface. Uh, his whole career, his whole set of interests made him very respectful of Old Norse, Old English, and, and of course Finnish mythology. But he also knew the first commandment. And for those of us who have forgotten what the first commandment is, it is, uh, thou shalt have no other gods but me. So, how do you introduce pagan gods without contravening the first commandment? Is that not, in a way, sinful to resurrect such deities. Tolkien, I think, backpedaled on that. If you look at the Silmarillion, 
you can see that his description of the Valar is very close to early descriptions of Old Norse gods. But Tolkien backed away from that and ev eventually ended up with the Valar as, uh, as very clearly demiurges, subordinate to the One. Very much like uh, Lewis, who presents uh, the, uh, the demiurges as Eldils. I, I have a feeling that this is an area where Lewis may have had some influence on Tolkien. He may have persuaded him of this Neoplatonic idea of the demiurges, who are, so to speak, intermediate between God and humanity. Well, uh, that, I think, was Tolkien's problem. He wanted to resurrect old mythology, but he did not want to challenge the Christian religion. Um, now, uh, there's a kind of similarity here between Beowulf and Lord of the Rings. Beowulf um, is very strange. Uh, it's generally agreed that it is a work. Generally, you know, everybody disagrees about something. It's generally agreed that it is a work written by a Christian Englishman. Written Christian Englishman. But it never mentions writing. It does use the word written twice, but it appears to mean cut, because the original meaning of written was to scratch. If you, scr you know, the way you, 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 the way you do runes which have no curves in them, you know, they're all straight lines, is you scratch them probably on wood. So written means to scratch, and it's only later it means write. Well, the Beowulf poet doesn't use it to mean write. It's as if he doesn't know what writing is. That's funny. Um, it's written, well, by a Christian. Yeah. But there's no mention of Christ in the poem. Uh, you might say, well, it would be anachronistic, but that didn't bother other Anglo-Saxons. They had uh, mentions of Christ in stories set in Old Testament times. Um, and it's uh, perhaps the strangest thing is that it's generally agreed, yeah, okay, to have been written by an Englishman, but it never mentions England. It never mentions Britain. It doesn't really mention anybody who's English. There are two cases who might be considered English, Offa and Hengist, but if they are mentioned, they have not yet reached England. In fact, Offa never did reach England. It's just he, there was another Offa who was English. But the Offa in the poem is not that Offa. The Offa in the poem lives in what is now Germany. Okay. Uh, so uh, it's uh, written by a Christian Englishman who never mentions England, never mentions Christ, and doesn't seem to know what writing is. That's kind of three big contradictions. Um, and there's something going along with that. The poet must have known that all the characters he was writing about, some of whom were certainly real people, and we can put a kind of date on it, he must have known that they were all pagans. Um, well, uh, you might expect him to believe, if he was a Christian, that as pagans they had no hope of salvation. Um, is Beowulf saved or damned when he dies? If you could have slide four, Corey. This is what it says about Beowulf right at the end, after he's died. And it's Tolkien's translation again. From his bosom did the soul depart to seek the judgment of the just. 
Yes. Seek. Um, but it doesn't say what the judgment of the just is. And there's a question there. Does it mean the judgment which will be given to the just on judgment day, which is that they will be saved? Or does it mean the judgment which will be given by the just, which may mean saved or may mean damned? Well, um, uh, uh, the remark is ambiguous, I think. And I suppose it's deliberately ambiguous. The poet doesn't want to say what, uh, what the fate of the soul of his hero is. Okay, what about the characters in Lord of the Rings? They're not Christians, are they? Um, what is the fate of their souls? Um, they're pagans, aren't they? Well, no, they aren't really. Um, they ought to be pagans, but they aren't real pagans. Uh, they aren't real pagans like we know, you know, like we know pagans really were. Think of all the things that aren't there in Middle Earth. The riders, they seem to be an image of pagan Anglo-Saxons, but they don't have slaves. Uh, they don't have human sacrifice. As a matter of fact, they don't seem to worship any gods at all, do they? Think about Theoden's funeral. It's very, very like Beowulf, you know, the barrow, the dirge, the people riding round it, singing his praises. It's all a bit like all a bit like Game of Thrones, you know, and Carl Drogo. Um, but uh, but actually all the, the ghastly bits aren't there. There's in a you feel in a real ceremony like that, there would have been a sacrifice. There would have been sacrificing horses and dogs and hawks to keep the dead man company and all too likely slaves as well. Um, but that doesn't happen in Middle Earth. In fact, you, you can't imagine it happening. Theoden wouldn't allow anything like that. They're not that kind of person. So they're pagans in theory, but they don't look like pagans. They live in a kind of religious limbo. So do the hobbits. Um, the hobbits seem very like English people, and they get married. Uh, uh, they don't get married in church, do they? Because they don't have any churches. What kind of ceremony is it? Does the mayor of Mitchell Delving marry them? We don't know. That's just, as I say, that's just, just, just a blank. Uh, the hobbits and the riders and the other inhabitants of Middle Earth, uh, they live in a kind of limbo. Not religious, not Christian, not really pagan. And that's what Tolkien learned from Beowulf. Because it's the same in Beowulf. Um, here's a detailed connection, which I think, I think, probably isn't accidental. Um, I've been using the word pagan, but uh, the, the, the old English term for that is heathen, which means heathen. If you could have uh, the next slide, please, Corey. The, the word heathen is only used twice in Lord of the Rings, and you can see the, the quotations I've given. Uh, it's clearly used. Um, uh, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a word which is not approved of. Uh, this is not quite true in Beowulf, where the word is used six times, well, five and a half. Uh, but four of those are about Grendel or about the dragon. Only two, well, one and a half, are about people. One of those is the one you can see there, such was their wont, talking about the Danes, the hope of the heathens. The Danes are heathens. Tolkien thought that line was an insertion. He thought the poet hadn't written it. He thought it was a mistake. And the other one, and incidentally, I can see I've got a typo here. Uh, late in the poem, 
um, the queen is carrying around uh, uh, drinks to Beowulf's people, the Yertas, and it says she, she carries the cup round, and it looks like Herthnum Tohanda, but uh, somebody has then gone through, gone through the, the looked at the manuscript, and has crossed out, not the ash, the A-E, which I, that's my typo, they actually crossed out the, the bar D, the thorn, so it now reads, she carried it round to the hands of the Hernum, the word Herthnum, seems to have been used, heathens, to describe Beowulf's people, but that's been corrected. And we're not quite sure why. But it looks as if the poet was, on the whole, very reluctant to describe his characters as heathens, but they were. And he knew they were, but he wasn't going to admit it. Well, um, that, I think, is the big connection between Beowulf and Middle-earth. Middle-earth exists in a kind of mythological limbo, but that mythological limbo is exactly the same as the mythological limbo of Beowulf. And Beowulf, in a way, told Tolkien how to solve his problem of reconciling pagan mythology and Christian belief. You do it the way it's done in Beowulf. Well, uh, I sum that up by saying Beowulf is built into the very essence of Middle-earth. Middle-earth is a Beowulfian invention. That's quite good, actually. Middle-earth is a Beowulfian invention. I hope you can see what I, what I mean by that. Well, um, I'm running over time. Uh, I'll just point out some evident debts owed by Tolkien's fiction to Beowulf. Um, uh, yeah, Corey, if we could have the next slide, uh, and I'll leave this up. Um, this is a uh, this is a web references to uh, two critiques of Tolkien's 1936 lecture. You can write it down now, or uh, but actually these these slides will be available uh, through uh, MythGuard, so you don't have to write it down. You can look them up later. But um, uh, both Michael and I have been wondering whether, whether um, Tolkien did not perhaps uh, set an awful lot of people uh, off on the wrong path. Um, he, what he was doing was demanding autonomy for fantasy and saying fantasy was a worthwhile and respectable literary genre and that's been accepted but um, he disguised what he was saying uh, uh, and that's what I meant earlier on by saying he was rather sneaky. If I could just quote him on uh, page 16 as it happens of his lecture he says, arguing for dragons, um, more than one poem in recent years has been inspired by the dragons of Beowulf. Um, what's the number more than one? It's, as you know, two. How many poems have been inspired by dragons in the period Tolkien's talking about? Two. Which poems were they? We know because Michael Drought found the drafts and Tolkien quoted them. One was one, by, one was by Tolkien, which was called The Horde, and the other was by C.S. Lewis, called The Dragon Speaks. So what Tolkien was really saying there was, uh, uh, well, um, um, you can still find people who've been caught by the fascination of the worm. For instance, I like dragons, and my best friend Jack, he likes dragons too. So there. <laughs> but that's what Tolkien meant. Um, but of course... If he'd said that to the British Academy, they'd have said, uh, 
Well, uh, uh, one swallow doesn't make a summer, and actually two of them don't make a summer when it's you and your best friend. So that piece of argument doesn't really get us very far. So um, Tolkien, I think, you know, uh, 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 was um, concealing things from his audience. Still, uh, I was going to say, what did he actually borrow from Beowulf? I'll give you a few things. Bilbo and Smaug. In Beowulf, the, the uh, sequence of events with the dragon is uh, dragon horde, thief steals cup, uh, gets away, dragon flies into rage and goes and burns places down, uh, uh, return to the horde, and final death of dragon. Well, that's very like what happens in The Hobbit. We have uh, Bilbo steals the cup, return of Bilbo, burning of Lake Town, death of dragon. The deaths are different, but the kind of one, two, three, four, five sequence is pretty much the same. Another one. Uh, next slide, if we could have, a, have it, um, uh, Corey. Um, uh, the approach to uh, Theoden's Golden Hall in Lord of the Rings. Um, in Beowulf, the approach to Heorot goes, anonymous coast guard, named door, door guard, pile arms outside the hall, in to see Hrothgar, challenge from Unferth. In Lord of the Rings, it's anonymous gate guard of Edoras, who takes him to the hall, named door ward of Medusel, Harma, uh, pile arms, meet Theoden, challenge from Grima. Again, one, two, three, four, five. And actually, um, at exactly the same place in the two accounts, you have someone saying something gnomic, saying a kind of proverb. And uh, in Beowulf, it's, as you see, uh, a man of keen wit will discern the truth in both words and deeds. That was quite a difficult proverb. I used to wonder what it meant. But actually, I soon figured it out because uh, I realized it meant what Tolkien said in Lord of the Rings. Not in his translation. In Lord of the Rings, it says, in doubt, a man of worth will trust to his own wisdom. That's the gist of both Proverbs, and they're said at exactly the same, same place. So Tolkien, um, well, there's a, a line in his translation uh, of Beowulf, um, well, he knew the customs of courtly men. And I think Tolkien copied his idea of how an Anglo-Saxon hall would actually work for the riders, uh, he copied it straight out of, uh, of Beowulf in some detail. And he also copied the way that the people talked to each other. Well, I'm saving a few things up to be discussed later on, but to summarize what I've been saying, Tolkien in 1936 had a personal agenda. He was promoting fantasy because that's what he'd been writing himself. Okay. Part of his agenda was to redirect attention to the monsters. In doing so, he appeared to refute the critics, but in the end, what he did was to discredit the philological critics and open the gate to the literary critics, as I've said, a very inferior crew. His view of the theme of Beowulf remains obscure, but he thought it was about Christians looking back regretfully on their pagan ancestors and trying to reclassify them as not quite pagan. You could say that where you might expect a two-way division, heathens and Christians, the Beowulf poet created a three-way division, heathen monsters and Christians, and in between the heroes who are neither one thing nor the other, but who are definitely on our side against the monsters. 
And that is exactly the situation of Middle-earth. Theoden is not a Christian, nor is Legolas, nor is Aragorn. But the wise, with a capital W, the wise have inklings of revelation. And they do not follow and they strongly condemn heathen practices. The most important thing about Middle-earth is that it is modeled on the situation in Beowulf. But Tolkien couldn't say that in 1936 because Middle-earth was still a secret for himself alone. It would become clear later, but at the time it was not clear. Now next time I'm going to go on to Finn and Hengist and the problem of the origins of England and Tolkien's early attempts to make his mythology fit the real world. Okay, I overran a bit. Uh, um, I'm uh, going to try and look at the questions now, but I always have a bit of trouble with these, I have to say, because I'm looking at them in a very tiny little keyhole, which uh, I find difficult to expand. But I'll start, uh, start reading them. Um, I wonder if there's a way to, uh, to expand that. No. Is there's that, uh, the square with the arrow on the right-hand side of the, the bar on top? The bar that reads questions? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, let's see. Uh, okay, yes. Yeah, good. Got it. Um, uh, various comments coming in. Um, mostly about, uh, about uh, uh, the face tracking. Uh, and why the camera keeps zooming in and out. I'll try and fix that later. Um, uh, Kate Neville says, these odd named persons remind me of the list of attendees at the Council of Elros, like for instance Eristor. And you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a good point. Um, talking about censuses. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, in the Council of Elrond, um, it's like the Rollwright Stones, which is a, a stone circle uh, uh, on the borders of Oxfordshire. And the story about it is that uh, uh, if you try to count them, you always get a different number. Um, and uh, the Council of Elrond's rather like that. How many speakers are there in the Council of Elrond? Um, 21, 22? Every time I count, uh, you know, I get a different answer. But there are, there are quite a number of them, like, uh, as Kate points out, Eristor who seem to me not to be doing anything. Now, in a modern novel like Lord of the Rings, yeah, uh, okay, that seems... Uh, it's, it's, it's part of what we call realism, isn't it? But uh, was the... Can you... It seems rather anachronistic to think of an epic poet inventing people and their names just uh, as sort of background fillers. Um, uh, well, it's possible, but I don't think it's very... Well, I don't think it's very likely. Um, Especially as, and I, I, I really mustn't get into this, especially as uh, some of the, uh, the unknown characters, uh, the characters with names that no one else ever bore, are actually vitally important for the story. Uh, you can't get rid of them. Uh, so uh, I'm inclined to believe that the poet at least thought that all these strange named people who don't do anything uh, had some kind of real existence outside the poem. Um, 
Yeah, Andrew has asked, I have a theory about Ermanlaf, and I think that's, that's it. I think that there probably was a character in a heroic legend called Ermanlaf, in the same way as the poem Beowulf is full of what Tolkien liked more than anything, lost tales, tales which never get told. We're told that Unferth did something awful in his early life. He, he was responsible for the death of his brothers, but he's still in a position of honor and status at the court of the Danes. How can you off your brothers and still be uh, regarded as an honorable person? There must be a story there. But we don't know what it is. Uh, and that happens quite a lot. Uh, you could say that this is the poet just sort of hinting at stories which don't necessarily exist, but more likely I think they did exist, but we don't know what they were. Well, um, uh, where are we? Um, Ilya says Numenorians worship the one directly, and so arguably the Gondorians, so arguably the riders. So they should be okay from the point of view of salvation. They know the one and only correct God, but no Christ there. Well, every time I say anything about theology, uh, uh, somebody uh, comes along and tells me I, uh, I have got it wrong, and I, uh, I don't understand Augustine, and I don't understand Aquinas. Um, and uh, I am quite happy to confess I don't understand Augustine or Aquinas. But it was certainly a widely held viewpoint in the Middle Ages and in the Dark Ages that uh, you could not be saved without baptism. Nulla salvatio extra ecclesiam. There is no salvation outside the church. And that's a very hardline view, but I think that was the, the common one. So uh, when Ilya says they should be okay from the point of view of salvation, yeah, from a human point of view, but, um, but, but, I, uh, but the human point of view is not the one that is important here. So um, I think there is... Uh, and naturally, we are very reluctant to believe in the damnation of uh, Aragorn or Legolas, and I, I'm not saying we should believe in it, but I'm saying there is a problem there, and that Tolkien had got to find some way around it. Um, uh, Tony Mead asks, um, has the pace of Tolkien publishing picked up recently? Um, and uh, uh, Tony suggests, and I, I think straight away he's right, do we attribute that to the fact that Christopher wants to make sure that everything gets published while he is still around to act as steward of his father's works. And I think, uh, um, as uh, Jeeves often says in the, in the Worcester and Jeeves uh, TV things, uh, Tony, rem acu tetigisti, you have put your finger on it. You, you've actually touched the, 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 the point with the point of a needle. I think that's exactly what it is. Um, Christopher has picked up the pace to make certain it gets done. Um, Halstein asks, how is heathenism treated in other medieval literature like the Icelandic and legendary sagas? Well, um, uh, what uh, w we often get a kind of attempt to um, mitigate the paganism of people who must have been pagan. We're told of a character who um, believed in Christ, but who also played to, prayed to Thor uh, during uh, bad weather at sea. So uh, there were people who um, 
you might say, were halfway to being Christians, which of course you can't be, it's the whole thing or, or not at all. But there were attempts to uh, indicate a kind of halfway house. And another way of putting it would be to say that, uh, well, we know these people lived before the time of Christianity being preached, so they couldn't have been Christians, but they weren't, pe hey, they weren't pagans either. They weren't heathens. What did they believe in then? They believed in themselves. I believe in my own strength and might, says one character. I believe in, you know, I believe in, in my axe and my storehouse. Um, so they are, you might say, atheists in the sense of not believing in the pagan deities, but um, not quite, but have not yet been exposed to, uh, to uh, Christianity. There are quite a lot of stories trying to deal with this issue of the, which I think was a very painful issue in a way, because um, after all, if you believed a, a hardline preacher who said, you've, you've got to be a Christian or you're going to go to hell, then there was a period when people might say, well, that, that doesn't seem fair. What about my granny? She never did any harm to anyone. Why does she go to hell? And you say, well, that's because of original sin. And that's not a very not a very satisfying answer. So there were quite a lot of attempts to um, find some kind of halfway house which was not too strict, uh, which, uh, which, which gave a bit of hope for the people who were, the people, well, I can't up quoting Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness. So uh, um, I, I think I can only say to Halstein, it was an issue, and um, one way that people salved their conscience was to uh, criticize very strongly uh, the people whom they regarded as real heathens, and to say that they weren't actually worshipping the pagan gods, they were worshipping demons, devils, masquerading as pagan gods. But they were hardliners and softliners, um, and I'm sure, uh, uh, well, there were different missionary strategies. One of them was, one of the successful ones was actually to say, look, don't be too hard on them. Uh, perhaps the classic case of that, uh, 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 the, uh, a mistake being made, was in the life of a Frankish saint, Saint Wolfraven, Wolf Raven was his name. Um, he uh, had persuaded the uh, Duke of the Frisians, uh, Redwald, to uh, accept baptism, and Redwald were standing by the baptismal tank because in those days they didn't pour water over you, they put you in the water. He was standing by the baptismal tank and he actually had his foot in the water. And he turned to St. Wolf Raven and said, uh, look, uh, when I get baptized, that's retrospective, isn't it? I get baptized, all my ancestors are baptized with me and they are released from hell. Right? And the saint said, wrong. One man, one baptism, one salvation. It's just you. And Redwall took his foot out of the tank and said, no deal. I'd rather go to hell with my ancestors than be saved with a bunch of people I don't know. And he then started a, a persecution of Christians. So um, perhaps St. Wolf Raven gave the right answer theologically but it was the wrong answer politically. Of course, in the saint's life, this is held up as an example of uh, 
um, Redwald being, uh, um, I'm sorry, not Redwald, it was Radbode, Radbode, Duke of the Frisians. He's, he is held up as an example of the, uh, the, you know, the bad guy, the guy who refused salvation, the guy who turned his back on salvation. Well, that's the way the saint's life tells it, but you, know, you can't help thinking that, that some would see it the other way. I always thought Radbode was really rather uh, honourable. I guess that's not going to do me much good in the in the quest for salvation, but I can see his point. Well, um, Joe asks, uh, what might have happened to the genre of modern fantasy if, if Tolkien hadn't broken it loose? Well, what I think would have happened is that modern fantasy would have continued to develop in an American direction because there was a very powerful fantasy tradition quite independent of Tolkien um, which stemmed really from um, magazines like Weird Tales so you have people like um, uh, Robert Howard you know Conan the Conqueror and all that you've got people like um, the great the incomparable Jack Vance who was writing fantasies independently of Tolkien as was Paul Anderson uh, so I think there would have been a kind of uh, the American tradition would have been uh, 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 would have continued the way it was going, um, but but it would not have received the big boost which Tolkien gave it. Tolkien gave fantasy writers a big boost, and uh, I suspect that many writers would not have been published if they hadn't had the uh, inspiration of Tolkien, and if the publishers hadn't been sometimes desperate desperate for a Tolkien successor. There are some very cynical publications post-Tolkien. People were desperate for a sequel to Lord of the Rings and when they didn't get one, the publishers got someone to write one. Um, the obvious example, if you need to know, is uh, Terry Brooks. Terry Brooks was marketed quite cynically as a Tolkien successor. Um, well, he got better as time went by, but at the start it wasn't too good. Did you ever read The Sword of Shannara? Well, don't. But if you do, you'll see how closely it copies Tolkien. Um, not well. Closely, but not well. Okay. Um, when Gandalf speaks of the heathen kings of old, is he referring to when the Numenorians worship Morgoth? Yes, that's right. Um, and and I dare say other things which happened in the dark years which uh, people don't talk about very much. Um, still Andrew Higgins. Hi Andrew. Um, given the recent archaeological evidence from Lyra are you seeing a turn back in scholarship to looking at the historical Beowulf and is scholarship starting to combine both the historical and the poetic mythic treatment of Beowulf thus combining Tolkien's ideas with historic analysis? And the answer is uh, yes, yes it is. Um, the archaeological evidence from Lyra, I expect I'll talk about that um, next week actually, uh, really did uh, put the cat among the pigeons. Um, but I don't think it's really sunk in yet. Um, I think it started to sink in 
uh, and people are not so quick now to say, oh, you know, legend, uh, no truth in it, don't worry, it can't be historical, forget it. Uh, they take, they take uh, Beowulf's history more seriously than they did. Um, but it takes a long time for the old view, inspired by talking, to wear off. But, uh, but uh, I think the tide has turned. Um, uh, well, I knew that somebody would tell me that, uh, that my theology was rotten, and uh, Timothy Fisher has. Uh, um, the absolute dichotomizing of pagan versus Christian, etc., is not typical of the first millennium. Uh, see the doctrine of the descent of Christ into hell. Yeah, I know that. Um, uh, this absolute dichotomy sounds more typical of Calvinistic Protestantism, which is the later form in its determinism. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think Timothy is wrong there, to be frank. Uh, uh, we have uh, very clear evidence from people like uh, um, Alcuin, who was probably a contemporary of the, uh, of the Beowulf poet, and he says flatly that we can't have anything to do with these people. There is no correspondence between them. Uh, they, uh, uh, I, I can find the quotation, and perhaps I will, and, and read it out. But he is absolutely certain that um, those historical figures, including uh, Ingeld, who is mentioned in Beowulf, uh, that, um, uh, that they are damned. Uh, and there's nothing to be said about them, and nothing good to be said about them. So um, that uh, view, which was not necessarily held by everybody, but it certainly was held by people close to the Beowulf poet in uh, space and time. And, and, and I could also point to examples of people not accepting it, but uh, which view was dominant? I think you'd have to be there to be sure, but uh, certainly um, there were hardliners and there were softliners. Um, Carl Anderson uh, would say that the theme of northern courage, of which Tolkien makes much in his Beowulf lecture, is also something that strongly underline, underlies many aspects of the creation of Middle-earth. Um, yes, that's, uh, that's right. The northern courage idea, though, notice, is connected very strongly by Tolkien with um, his view of Old Norse pagan mythology. Uh, because actually, the theory of courage, which he talks about, is based on hopelessness. In the Norse mythology, as Tolkien sees it, um, gods and men will fight the monsters at the great day of Ragnarok, and they will lose. They will lose. Um, but they're not going to change their mind just because of that. And that's a very different view from uh, the divine comedy. It's not a divine comedy, it's a divine tragedy. And the theory of courage is a kind of response to that divine tragedy. So um, that is a part, that is an aspect of, uh, of uh, what Tolkien sees as the pagan mythology. Um, Sparrow asks um, that maxim, discern the truth in both words and deeds, can it be considered as you may have pretty words, but handsome is as handsome does? Yeah, uh, there is an Anglo-Saxon proverb, which is also a modern proverb, which says, um, actions speak louder than words. It, it, it's zippier in Anglo-Saxon because they didn't say actions, they said works. Works speak louder than words. Um, 
Yeah, uh, but the problem for the Coast Guard in Beowulf is he's got no works to judge from. Has he? All he's got is what Beowulf's just said. And I think the proverb means, uh, I think uh, when I first encountered it, I, I read a translation which said something like, um, a wise man must be able to tell the difference between words and deeds. And I thought, that's just stupid. Any fool can see the difference between words and deeds. You don't need to be a wise man to, to do that. I, I thought what the proverb really meant was um, a wise man ought to be able to make his mind up on the evidence of either words or deeds. And the words are much harder, isn't it? Uh, because deeds speak louder than words. But you have to be able to listen to the words. And that's, that's, that's where the wisdom is. So, uh, um, yeah, it, it was a difficult maxim. And uh, uh, I think uh, uh, Harmer's uh, rendering of it, uh, in doubt, doubt it is, a man of worth will trust to his own wisdom. Um, in other words, I haven't got enough information to be certain about this, so I'll just have to do the best I can. Uh, and the thing is, a wise man will make a decision. The worst thing you can do is not make a decision. Making a wrong decision, well, that's bad. But making no decision at all, that's really bad. So that's the way I untangle this uh, rather difficult maxim, which has, of course, been translated uh, different ways. But I think I think I got my lead on it uh, from reading Tolkien. Um, uh, Richard Rowland says another good piece of Leographia or census in Lord of the Rings might be the names of the Entwives in Quickbeam's song. Of course, actually, if we're doing names in, in Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, don't forget place names, uh, uh, which are, I, th I think I counted more than 600 in Lord of the Rings, and most of them are not necessary, not, not immediately necessary, but they help to create the sense of a world. Um, uh, Ilya says that there are a lot of uh, killed people in the Iliad, a lot more redundant than Ermanlaf. Yes, that's right. They are sort of cannon fodder, aren't they? Uh, I'm sorry, not cannon fodder, they're spear fodder. So you have to say, you know, and great Darmides killed X and Y and Z and A and B and C. Um, and you can see the point of that. But uh, uh, you don't get those in Beowulf. What you get, characteristically, are the names of people who are related to people like Ermanlaf's elder brother. So it's as if they're trying to be cemented in to some sort of, uh, some sort of family tree, which and, and sometimes the family tree can be rather carefully reconstructed. And sometimes, as in the case of Hjorogar, that uh, family tree is vitally important for the understanding of the story. So, um, it may be that these names are redundant, as I suggested, but uh, but but I wonder. Um, maybe they aren't redundant. Maybe they were once doing something, but we don't know. We don't know exactly what. Um, Ilya also comments on uh, uh, no salvation outside of the church, posing a problem with Jewish patriarchs and kings. Um, 
Yes, and this, of course, has something to do with the descent into hell. There is an Anglo-Saxon poem about the descent into hell, and uh, it's clear from that that uh, um, the patriarchs and prophets who went to hell before Christ's coming and were released from hell during the harrowing of hell, which took place during the three days of Easter. Um, there are then theological problems associated with that which have been much commented on. But certainly the belief in the harrowing of hell was uh, um, one of the mitigating circumstances. But of course, what the harrowing of hell did was to release from hell the people who had lived before the time of Christ. But the anxiety in the northern world was what happened to the people who had lived after the time of Christ but who had never been told about Christian revelation. Did they get a second harrowing? I don't think anybody ever suggested that, but that would have been a neat solution. It's just that, well, no doubt it would turn, turn out not to be a very neat solution. Um, but uh, but uh, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, that, that is the problem. Um, what happened to my granny, you might say? It's a granny problem. After some generations, it ceased to be an anxiety because people don't remember their pagan grannies anymore. But for a time, it was, I think, a serious anxiety. Um, Jacob suggests that uh, the stories in the background, for this of the main story, were to keep the audience entertained and ask the storyteller about at a later date. And uh, it's really a way of keeping storytellers in business. Yeah, I, I think that, that, that may well be so. And uh, we have a poem, of course, Weedseeth in Old English, which looks like a kind of um, kind of census of uh, heroic legends. Kind of, here we are, there's uh, uh, 200 names. Uh, you want to know about any of these, you know, ask me and I'll give you the, I'll give you the story. But that will be tomorrow, okay? Um, a special deal, you know, three for the price of two. So uh, uh, there is certainly a, a point in, uh, in reminding people about uh, the existence of other stories. Um, Jacob Burby says, uh, well now, I better read it. Um, I believe they were designed by Tolkien, at least in Lord of the Rings, to, I mean, this means perhaps, well, I'm not sure, Numenorians, uh, to have been worshipping the gods before Christianity, or before established Christianity. The whole notion that in heaven there are no Christians. Christianity being man's way to comprehend the worship of God. Thus characters in Lord of the Rings may have been, as in Beowulf, pre-Christian as opposed to anti-Christian or traditionally pagan or heathen. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good way of putting it. They're pre-Christian as opposed to anti-Christian. But at the same time, then they're, they're not quite Christian. Um, so they are in a kind of limbo status, as I as I keep saying. Um, a question. Uh, Ilya says, uh, "Will we get to that fantastic idea of Tolkien's that the British Isles are really Tol Erisea, moved by elves back to the shores of Middle Earth to fight for Middle Earth?" Uh, yeah, um, that is something I will have to have a go at next week. Um, 
Timothy says that we Orthodox do not accept the Western Augustinian doctrine of original sin as inherited guilt, but as ancestral sin, which gives us mortality, not guilt, and which Christ lifts by defeating death on the cross. Uh, okay. Um, uh, there are many different uh, uh, theological theories, and, uh, and I uh, have no comment to make on, uh, on Orthodox Christianity. Um, Gabriel asks, do I think that as a philologist, Tolkien was drawn in more by the language or the stories of the Anglo-Saxons? Um, difficult question, but I would say... Um, I would say that uh, the language, actually, uh, just because there's more of it. Um, we wish we had more stories of the Anglo-Saxons, but we don't. So, but you can, oh well. Tolkien loved languages uh, and uh, had, a, had an affection for Anglo-Saxon. Uh, Ilya comments that Radbode gets us to um, Wagner and points out that Ortrud of Lohengrin is Radbode's daughter. Well, that's, uh, that's news to me, Ilya, but I believe you. Okay. I don't know what Wagner thought about it. Um, Tony says, I tried to watch the MTV series. Uh, well, I don't know what the MTV series is, so that, that beats me. Um, Timothy says, uh, Christ lifts the effect of mortality, ancestral sin, separation from the divine energies for the whole human race, not just for Christians, by the way. That's not what they told me in the Church of Scotland, Timothy. Um, whether the Church of Scotland was right or wrong, I do not know. Um, Guy Kay, the Silmarillion's editor, is copying stuff from Tolkien. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, in Fionavar Tapestry. Uh, this is Ilya again. It's a nice novel, but very clearly inspired as part of the canon. Uh, he later got better. That, I think, is quite common, actually. People start off just imitating Tolkien, and then they write themselves into their own voice. Um, comment from Carl, which I can't quite understand. Um, uh, Tony comments on the long defeat. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, sort of uh, the Ragnarok myth is, is, is the long defeat. Um, Richard suggests uh, any fool can tell the difference in works, but it takes a keen shield warrior to discern between true words and false. Yeah, that's right. That's what I was trying to say. That's what I think it means. Um, Timothy says that uh, Alcuin is Western, as is Tertullian, and the West tends to be increasingly harsher than the Eastern churches. Uh, that is true. And in particular, as I say, the Church of Scotland, which um, uh, is pretty hard on the notion of original sin. Um, I was brought up on it, you know. Um, what's it say? Um, I have to switch into Scottish. There is none righteous, no, not one, none that doeth good. Yeah, that's, that's, that's telling us. Um, we may think we're righteous, but we're wrong. We're wrongious. Um, Richard comments that, uh, speaking of place names, as a boy, the word gondolin, um, hang on, something skipped there, uh, in The Hobbit did for more for me than whole books by other authors in terms of creating a feeling of history. Actually, uh, Richard, I think that onomastics 
the invention of plausible names is an absolutely vital part of uh, of being a writer of fantasy um, and some of the words some of the ones uh, I was always fascinated by the uh, by the term Melon Udrigal, uh, the great forest of central Scotland which once existed and I once had a an incredibly powerful dream in which I was telling a story which was about Drum Dramdigal Forest. Um, now I don't know where Drum Dramdigal Forest is or comes from but but if I ever write a fantasy I shall set it in Drum Dramdigal Forest. Um, Tony says that Michael Drought talks about broken and fake references that create the illusion of depth. Broken references are those that are made but not explained as if the characters don't need them explained. Fake references are those that don't actually exist but are made to create the illusion. Well, that's a, that's a good distinction made by Michael Drought. And, um, what we're considering is whether these people like Ermanlaff are fake references or broken references. They could be fake references, but I am inclined to think that they are broken references. Um, Gabrielle says Michael Drought talks about Heimweh in Tolkien and the ideas of homesickness and nostalgia. Heimweh implies a home that one cannot actually return to. It's a distance of mind or of geography. Might Tolkien be expressing in Lord of the Rings a kind of homesickness, Heimweh, for spiritual belief that he saw as not really existing any longer? Um, I don't think he thought that spiritual belief didn't exist any longer because he had it himself. Um, I think he, he he does, doesn't he? He does express very strongly the idea of homesickness, but it's the homesickness of the elves, isn't it? For for Valinor, um, that's what they feel when they look up at the stars, um, when they find themselves trapped in the wood, trapped in the forest, but looking up at the stars. Um, Tolkien was very ambiguous about that. He, you might say that, uh, well, the elves put it, you know, they, they very much want to return to Valinor, but they don't want to leave Middle-earth. Um, and especially, they don't want to leave Middle-earth because of the trees. They don't want to leave the Malorn trees behind. And I think Tolkien was like that. He, he had the, the spiritual nostalgia but he also had this deep attachment to the the real physical world. Um, he was, a, you know, an obsessive gardener and botanizer. Uh, he just he just uh, wasn't just tree hugging. You know, he he was he loved plants of all kinds, and um, so a purely spiritual life. I think he'd feel there was something missing. Surely that's the whole burden of the story, Leaf by Niggle isn't it? Um, Niggle finds himself in purgatory and in the end he works his way through to paradise but in paradise he finds his tree um, and that was what he was looking for all along. Um, 
Brenton says, I wonder if the real issue on theology is what was contextually relevant. What were the live options for people in that world rather than Orthodox Christianity? Uh, if we're talking about the kind of uh, world of 5th, uh, 6th century Scandinavia and Britain, um, frankly, I don't think the options were too good. Uh, archaeology archaeology is pretty grisly, you know. Uh, um, there's a lot of evidence for really unpleasant kinds of human sacrifice. Uh, um, so I, th I think uh, I think real paganism uh, was uh, really a horrible and bloody business. I, I've seen the kind of uh, uh, I've seen the kind of bog corpses in in Scandinavian museums. Um, uh, we are, I don't, don't want to talk about it too much, actually. Let's just say that uh, that uh, I don't think you would like going to a church service um, in a kind of fifth-century uh, Scandinavia. Um, who, who knows who they'd pick on to have his throat cut? Um, possibly somebody who argued with them about theology. I wouldn't be surprised. So uh, best, be, you know, I think Christianity came as a great relief to many people. That's why it was so popular. May I point out that England um, was converted without a single martyr. It was converted to Christianity without a single martyr, which is not the case in many countries. But, uh, but uh, in some, I think it, uh, it lifted a weight off their shoulders. And I might say, I think that's what Tolkien was saying in his poem about King Shield. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Yea, they that dwell in the land of the valley of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Marvelous, the Mighty God, the King of Kings, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Well, I forget the rest of it, but that's Isaiah. But the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, yeah, I think there are a lot of people who thought that. And the people who walked in darkness were the poor heathens. Um, yes, uh, that's what I was trying to remember, Carl. Thanks very much. The poem is called King Sheave and seems to be an effort to develop the existing material of Beowulf, similar to earlier efforts with Colovo, Sager, and so on. And it also seems to maintain the pre-Christian, but not entirely non-Christian. Uh, late here now. We should probably uh, let you go. We can come back, I think, to some of these uh, other questions, possibly, if we get to. I know people are still okay, responding yeah. to some of those things, but yeah. of course, I know some of us can uh, talk about theology all night. So, uh, Thanks, Corey. I'm just making a quick note of, uh, of uh, the few questions I haven't got round to from Sparrow, from Andrew, from uh, Richard, um, and... Uh, I'll, uh, I'll try and I'll try and make a note to answer them, and perhaps perhaps I can put some of these answers online. Uh, okay, Great. people. Well, sorry we didn't get to the finish, but uh, but thanks very much. And very yes, good. we are at ten thirty. Yeah. <laughs> very good. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you everybody who is able to uh, to come and be with us here today. Remember, we'll be back next week at the same time for. Um, uh, for for our next session, and uh, we look forward to, uh, to to seeing you then. Thanks again very much, everybody. Okay. Good night, all.
Good night. Good night. If you enjoyed this seminar, please consider making a small donation to Signum University. Your gift will help us continue to make the seminar series and other great content available for free to the public. Just go to signumuniversity.org slash fund slash donate slash seminars. Thanks!